Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. During the American Revolution, just about everyone in the 13 colonies, or after July 2nd, 1776, the new United States, could be justly termed a traitor. For rebellious colonists prior to 1776, it was Parliament who had betrayed the English Constitution. For royal officials, resistance and then rebellion was treason to the monarch. After independence, those who Americans Americans identified numerous traitors in their midst, not only those who remained loyal to the old order of things, but those who persisted a little too long in neutrality or pacifism. As a legal issue, treason was in practice connected to numerous other things, to the power to arrest and detain, to the authority of the American military, to the composition of juries, and to the meaning of citizenship itself. With me to discuss the legal history of treason in the American Revolution is Carlton F.W. Larson, author of Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution, published in 2019 by Oxford University Press is a legal history, but also a social history of how treason was defined, prosecuted, and adjudicated in Pennsylvania, and then both as a colony and then as a commonwealth. Carlton Larson is Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the Davis School of Law at the University of California, Davis, a leading expert on the laws of treason. He's also just published On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Carlton Larson, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So uh, let's talk about the legal and historical prologue to this moment uh, that you're describing, which is what, roughly 1765 to 1787, thereabouts? Yeah, uh, maybe 1800. Okay, 1800. But there's a long history of treason uh, prior to that and a long history of its legal approach to treason. So um, could you describe sort of what's the state of play by the 18th century? I, I said in the intro that it's uh, there's treason against the person of the monarch, which is maybe a little bit medieval. I'm thinking that maybe the English Revolution of 1688 had changed that a little bit. But what what was treason? How was treason defined in English law and then in the colony of Pennsylvania? So in England, treason was defined by the very famous statute of treasons, which was enacted in 1351, uh, and that limited the scope of treason to the offenses of encompassing the death of the king, levying war against the king, adhering to the king's enemies, uh, and which are sort of the three core uh, treason offenses, but also some other things like sleeping with the king's wife and counterfeiting. Uh, these were all viewed as high treason. Uh, there was a separate crime known as petty treason, which was um, the murder of a of a husband by a wife or a master by uh, a servant. Uh, and so by the 18th century, this statute had been parsed pretty carefully by uh, English judges. Uh, it had been expanded in various ways, uh, particularly during the Tudor period, but most of those statutes had been subsequently repealed. So legal arguments focused on uh, what this 1351 statute meant. Now, in Pennsylvania, there was initial questions over whether this statute applied at all. This was sort of the larger problem of whether parliamentary statutes applied in full force in the colonies or not. And so Pennsylvania had a sort of series of abortive uh, treason statutes in the late 1600s, early 1700s, some of which were disallowed, 
uh, by the crown. Uh, and then finally, in 1718, Pennsylvania adopted uh, English treason law as its own uh, statutory law. And the, so that effectively brought uh, the crime of treason uh, with all of its English uh, uh, apparatuses uh, into the Pennsylvania legal system. Uh, one question that persisted, though, was whether this was treason against uh, the king uh, or whether it was treason against Pennsylvania. That is, suppose you revolted against the government of Pennsylvania, with, but with, sought to remain entirely loyal to the king. Uh, and that was actually a, a problem in Pennsylvania, particularly given a significant border dispute with Connecticut um, over settlers in the middle of the state who refused to recognize Pennsylvania's jurisdiction were actually in open warfare with Pennsylvania uh, up through 1775. Uh, but the British view was this is not our problem uh, because all these people remain loyal to us. It's simply a dispute between Pennsylvania and Connecticut and it doesn't affect us. And so it was left to Pennsylvania officials to sort out, but they never actually used the law of treason by insisting uh, that the Connecticut settlers had to be loyal to them. So that so that was an interpretation of the law, but no one ar arrested anyone from Connecticut and then used that interpretation in part of the trial. Exactly. The trial. Yeah, no Connecticut settler was ever tried for treason. Okay. Um, it, it just that's a side issue. People are just going to be astonished at the idea that there was Connecticut uh, claim jumpers on Pennsylvania land, but it's true. It's one of the, <laughs> one, yeah. of the one of the many fascinating wrinkles of colonial American history, and. Uh, uh, that we needed a separate podcast on that. Uh, but it, it, it's uh, – it, just get back to this. How is treason um, – is is there any difference between a, a grand jury or a court if in a treason trial? Do they have a different composition? Are there different punishments? I mean, what's what what are the different – or is it just like any other criminal statute? So, so under English law, treason was uh, distinctive. Um, not so much that the grand jury was or the juries were different, but that the uh, there was a, a two witness requirement. You had to have two witnesses mm. to the same offense, and then most significantly, the punishment was different. Uh, so, if you were tried for a felony in 18th century England, you would be uh, hanged. Uh, by contrast, if you were tried for treason, you would suffer this extraordinarily gruesome punishment uh, in which you'd be dragged behind a cart to the place of execution. Um, you would be hanged until you're nearly dead, but not quite dead, uh, at which point you'd be cut down, your uh, bowels would be ripped open, uh, your intestines set on fire, uh, your head cut off, uh, and then your arms and legs chopped off, sometimes your genitals uh, stuffed off, uh, cut off, and then your you know, head placed on a pike, uh, in a, in a visible uh, location. Uh, so that was, that was quite a bit different uh, mm -hmm. than being hanged. Uh, and it also carried with it a corruption of blood, meaning that your children were now uh, barred from any inheritance claims that ran through you. Um, so this had the effect of uh, you know, really sort of passing the crime of treason on down to, to later generations. Uh, and that's actually something that's barred in the U.S. Constitution, that, that you can't do that. But that was a standard part of, of English uh, treason practice. No, um, that's awfully, gosh, it's, people say it's awfully medieval. It actually sounds like Roman punishments, like what parricide, um, I don't know if you ever had to teach Roman law with the, 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 the someone who's killed their father is put in the uh, sack with a dog, a monkey and a rooster, I think, or a snake, or I forget, with well, some combination of those animals and then tossed in the Tiber. Uh, the reason for that is uh, no one's quite certain, but there's like a parable going on there. Um, and there's a parable going on in the execution as well. There's a there's a lesson. There's an object lesson there, not just the execution, but the way that it's done um, about what the person has has committed. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, this was meant to have a pretty strong deterrent effect. You know, <laughs> yeah. anybody who watched this uh, probably gets the idea. You know, I, I really don't want that to happen to yeah. me. Uh, and as you mentioned, parasite, because in some ways you can you can think about the treason and the king as sort of as the father of the nation. And the thirteen fifty one statute really does have this very medieval sense of it's a betrayal of a person. It's it's the betrayal of the monarch. Mm-hmm. Um, and in thirteen fifty one, it's not really betrayal of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some very good work uh, on you know in the seventeenth century how that conception really does kind of change in England, and mm-hmm. so that it is betrayal of the state. And in some ways, I suppose the best example of that is the trial of Charles the first himself uh, for treason, uh, where he is, you know, literally the monarch, mm-hmm. uh, and yet he is he is charged uh, with treason. And so you do get, I think, um, by by the 18th century, more of a sense that treason is a betrayal of your of your fellow citizens, of a betrayal of the nation. It's not just about the person of the king. Yeah, the uh, and certainly uh, if people don't want to talk about the English Civil War after it's happened, but in 1688, all those members of Parliament were guilty of treason again. They had you know, expelled the king from um, England, and I think one of their only real best defenses was that the king had thrown away the the, the royal the seal. Uh, so a way they could say, well, he's he's abandoned us. He's no longer he doesn't have the seal of his office. So he's he's really left it behind. Yeah, exactly. Um, so did um, Pennsylvania ever execute anyone for treason? Did any of the other uh, twelve other colonies uh, in North America, or actually more like twenty five other colonies, execute anyone for? For, I should say, I know that Virginia executed lots of people for petty treason. They're called enslaved, um, and they might have murdered their uh, the person who owned them, their slave master, and they would be executed. Their head would be cut off, and they would be put on a stake at a crossroads close to the place of the execution. So there's a there's a that, but that's petty treason. Does anyone get executed for um, or tried and executed for treason treason? Um, not until the revolution uh, in in Pennsylvania that I'm aware of, um, and I'm not aware of any in other colonies. Although I should um, caution that I have not looked closely at the other colonies. I, and uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I believe there may have been an, ex- an early execution in New York, but I'm totally blanking on that at the moment. Yeah, I think there. I think it was. I think it was Lizer's rebellion. I think you mentioned. Yeah, that like, yeah. And that, as I recall, but he was only hung. Uh, um, not he was not hung, drawn, and quartered. Um, well, the, the um, so that's a that's a kind of curious thing that we've got as a backdrop to this that it never um, it never is is exercised or or, or takes place um, in in the colonies. Um, but you know, I, I wouldn't put it past South Carolina to have actually gone the whole road. They, they if any place probably hung, drawn, quartered someone that was in South Carolina. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> uh, um, so what? So how did you end up focusing on Pennsylvania? Because it was there. Uh, I mean, why? Because the records. Um, what was what was the reason for focusing on Pennsylvania? Well, I mean, in part, I suppose it is it is you know the drunk under the streetlight. You you look where the where the, <laughs> where the records are. Um, uh, so I mean, it's one of the big problems with with a book like this is if you're trying to sort of tell the story of trees in the American Revolution, do you do it you know across the all thirteen colonies, um, or really focus on on one state and. Obviously, there's advantages to both. Um, you know, having the broader national perspective is 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 are potentially useful. But um, what I found is that this is just really hard to do. Uh, mm-hmm. You just have to really dig into unpublished court records, and I just don't think <clears throat> it's possible for any any person to comprehensively 
um, survey trees during the revolution across uh, the entire country without just producing something that's uh, you know fairly superficial and, and perhaps not as useful. Yeah. Um, so I made the choice that I would really just try to tell the story through one particular state, uh, which of course raises questions about typicality uh, and you know, how much we can draw from this particular story. And obviously there's, there's things that are unique about Pennsylvania. It has this sort of very distinctive constitution in 1776. It has a um, sort of distinctive uh, population of Quakers that um, many other colonies didn't have. Uh, but at the same time, I think it is actually a very important state, perhaps the most important state uh, in terms of treason during the revolution. Um, this was a state that was, first of all, the center of the national government. Um, the, some of the treason trials I write about took a place across the hall from the assembly room uh, where the Continental Congress met. And, and so they, the trials were in literally in Independence Hall in the, the courtroom in that building. Uh, the people who participated in these trials included many uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence, including the presiding judge and, and many of the defense attorneys. Uh, this, was, this, was, this was the commercial hub of the entire nation. So what happened here uh, tended to get reported elsewhere. Uh, and it was the center of serious military activity. So Philadelphia falls to the British in the fall of 1777, uh, returns to American control in uh, June of 1778. Uh, and so Treason became an absolutely central issue at a critical point in the war uh, in Pennsylvania in a way that it didn't, uh, for example, say in Boston uh, or in some of the southern colonies where the war really came to them later in the war. Uh, and so, and it has just simply, you know, really good records. And so the Society of Pennsylvania is terrific. The court records are pretty well preserved. And so um, this seemed to be, if there's any place to do it, uh, let's do it here. Yeah. Um, well, well, we'll get to that in just a second. About the, it's it's a very interesting point about Boston or or South Carolina. Uh, and uh, South Carolina, you have, you have a problem with records, and I guess Boston, you don't. But there's other interesting. I guess there's a longitudinal history of treason in this place that you can't quite do in Boston or Charleston. Um, yeah, you can go, that's right. Yeah, uh, but we'll get to that because from well, this sort of leads into the next question, which is from 1763. Even to 1775, um, people start to throw the word treason and traitor words around a lot. Um, so how it, it's, I think, how do people who oppose parliamentary measures, how do they avoid or argue against the idea that they are traitors by opposing a measure of parliament? This is one of the things that really sort of surprised me when I was, I was researching the book was just how much, <clears throat> excuse me, treason talk was in the air uh, in this period. You would think, well, once the, the war breaks out, that, of course, the British should be making accusations of, of treason because at that point it clearly was. They clearly were levying war against the king. But in the period up to that, um, there were significant accusations of treason uh, against the American colonists by British officials. Uh, and the, the colonists really we're stung by that. Um, you know, the, what they viewed as sort of legitimate resistance uh, to tyranny or simply raising their rights within the British empire uh, was being tarred as treason. Uh, and one of the, the deep fears was that they might actually be tried for treason and British officials had threatened um, to use an old statute of Henry VIII to bring American uh, colonists to England for trial. Uh, and what that would mean would be they'd be tried in front of a London jury uh, and not uh, an American jury. Uh, and this was viewed as deeply offensive uh, to the rights of a British subject uh, to be deprived uh, the right of a local jury on, on a, such a serious charge uh, as treason. And so curiously, um, 
despite all this, where they are insisting that, no, this is not treason. We need to define treason narrowly. This is because we're not committing treason. They couldn't really resist the rhetorical uh, jab of throwing it right back at the British. And so you see a cascade of denunciations from Americans of various British officials as traitors. So members of parliament are traitors. The king's ministers are traitors. Um, some people even say the king himself uh, is a traitor, that all these people have betrayed the British Constitution, that these people have betrayed American liberties. And some of this ties into sort of, you know, the conspiracy theory of, you know, that there's a conspiracy to undermine uh, American rights. And so uh, this rhetoric was really quite pervasive uh, during this period. Had people been, I, well, I guess the king had in in the Civil War been accused of uh, being a traitor, was certainly accused of being a traitor to the, the English Constitution. Had that been used in, do you know, in, in British politics uh, during the 18th century? Were people accused, of, ministers accused by members of parliament or by other people of being of betraying the English Constitution? And so using, using treason in a rhetorical and maximalist way. Yeah, you know that's a good question, I, and I don't, I don't know for sure. Um, it wouldn't necessarily surprise me um, that in some of the opposition politics, uh, you might have seen language about that about particular um, detested ministers. Uh, but I, I can't think of any specific examples uh, yeah. off the top of my head. So this is this is part of the rhetoric, um, and then it, things get real. Um, in 1775, um, well, even before that with the Gaspé affair. Could you explain what happens then and, and why this becomes a, all of a sudden, for at least for, for rebels or for patriots or whatever you want to call them, becomes a very great danger that the Henry VIII statue might be used? Yeah, so this was an incident in uh, Rhode Island uh, where um, a group of Rhode Islanders, and, and, and these were connected with a lot of the prominent people in the colony, they essentially attacked uh, a British Royal Navy ship and burned it. Uh, and so this was viewed as an act of levying war of the king, war against the king by British uh, legal officials. Um, now, there, there's some question about whether that was actually correct under uh, English law, because um, there were some concerns about whether simply burning an empty ship uh, counted well, they did shoot uh, under, the under, lieutenant. Under laws. Lieutenant Dunningstone yeah. did get shot in the gut. I mean, he was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that also happened. You know, accidentally, tragically discharged a pistol into his side. So there was, you know, um, there was that. But it, this yes, was a, yeah. this is one of those things that you have a grand jury about, I guess. So right, yeah. So right. So the British were, were were pretty clear in their view. This clearly was treason. They sent a commission to an investigate, uh, but ultimately they they were unable to develop sufficient evidence that they could bring. Um, in front of a grand jury, and so nobody was ever um, indicted for this. So we've got Lexington Concord. Uh, I, I by this time we have to. I guess the British Americans are admitting by this time this looks an awfully lot like treason. But you've got this really interesting period between April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five, and July second, seventeen seventy six, when they they vote to approve the resolution to declare the the, the uh, colonies independent of Britain where um, everyone's trying really hard to put a good face on everything that's happening. We might have taken up arms, but we've taken up arms against the forces of parliament, not against the king's troops or the king's majesty. Um, could you explain how that's how people are talking about that? How are people talking about this in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I mean, this is an exceptionally awkward time. Because <laughs> I mean, as, as of April 1775, I mean, the American colonies are at war uh, with the forces of 
Great Britain. Uh, and one dodge, you know, that some people tried to use was to say, well, uh, these troops are the parliament troops. Um, they're not the king's troops, uh, which was a, you know, a really quite specious uh, distinction. But it was one way to sort of try to hang on to this idea uh, that we're still loyal to the king, even while we're waging war uh, against his forces. Uh, so the problem in, in Pennsylvania is, well, you've got people who are clearly aiding the British. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you, what do you, well, what do you do with them? Well, they haven't done anything arguably illegal, Right. They, I mean, they're they're supporting their king. They're supposed to doing what they're supposed to in potentially suppressing a rebellion. But it's inconceivable that you're going to allow them sort of free reign uh, to go around doing what they're doing. Uh, of course, you can't charge them with treason in a court of law. It'd be absurd, uh, you know, to issue an indictment saying that this person committed treason. Uh, you know, treason against what, arguably? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have instead committees of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, that take the lead in investigating these cases of disloyalty. So in Pennsylvania, there's a, uh, a state committee of safety and then uh, individual committees in each of the counties. And uh, the state committee uh, actually investigates uh, some fairly serious charges of what it will term treason. Uh, and it tries uh, persons uh, in Pennsylvania of treason uh, for being uh, loyal to and assisting the British forces, and these people are then imprisoned. Now they're not executed because they don't—they didn't think that legally. I think that would, that that would be justified. But they did place people in prison under what they called the charge of treason. Uh, and now the county committees also uh, investigated things, mostly verbal offenses of people who spoke uh, against the war. Uh, most of those people simply, uh, you know, recanted and, and apologized. Sometimes they were. Um, you know, they were, they were fined or in very rare cases imprisoned. Uh, but these cases, I think, which um, really have not been talked about much in the, in the treason literature, uh, are to me really the kind of the origins of an American treason law, uh, where so, we've asserted that these people are ultimately loyal, not to Great Britain, yeah. uh, but loyal to the United States. And uh, you see that language, um, uh, you know, treason against the United States of America actually fairly early. Let's focus in on this because this is a fascinating. It's a. Fa- I mean, it's one of my favorite moments in the revolution, actually, because of its its complexity, <laughs> and uh, and this is an example of that complexity. I think you should probably explain how uh, the very different way in which uh, cases are brought in colonial and revolutionary America uh, that we are completely unused to, like how uh, criminal law works, um, how a criminal suit is brought, and just to give us a little background on that. So a criminal uh, prosecution in um, 18th century uh, Pennsylvania would have uh, for uh, really both for felonies and misdemeanors, uh, it would have been brought initially before uh, a grand jury, which would then issue uh, the indictment uh, and the person would then uh, be tried by a trial jury. Trials tended to be fairly quick. Um, be very rare for a trial to last more than a day. Um, the treason trials I looked at, um, uh, really the longest I think I saw was it was about a day or maybe you know, late into the night. Uh, smaller offenses would have gone uh, much more quickly. Uh, now, what's interesting is that these committees of safety actually don't use that procedure. They don't use mm-hmm. grand juries uh, and they don't use juries. Do uh, which, do? when you th- which when you think about the complaint of about being threatened to being hauled to England was that you'd lose your local jury. Mm-hmm. Well, the first people to try people without a jury <laughs> for treason yeah. uh, were actually uh, the Americans. Yeah. So um, we should, and when uh, when you're brought before a grand jury, who is bringing the charge? 
because um, my understanding, at least in Virginia, um, it's not as if the sh- you're not being arrested by the local sheriff or department and being you know held for arraignment and all the rest of that stuff. It's a little bit more complex and sort of freewheeling than that. Yeah, certainly. So in uh, there's there's no first of all there's no police uh, in 18th century America. Right. That's a a 19th century innovation. So you don't have just sort of ordinary law enforcement, um, you know, patrolling the streets the way we would think about it now. Um, for felony cases, it was often the case that you know the victims would bring the suit mm-hmm. uh, in the name of the king, and this sort of regularized, professionalized prosecution um, is certainly that doesn't emerge really in Britain until the 19th century. Um, or in some places even even later, uh, and it has a it's, it's sort of popping up in different places and in different forms uh, in America in the 18th century. Um, treason cases do tend to be a little different in that historically those were always brought uh, by crown lawyers uh, in England, and so they tended to be brought uh, by the Attorney General uh, of Pennsylvania um, in in the in these cases. On the information, um, I would imagine, on the information of some citizen comes forward to an attorney general, or do they, or does do, do people even bring a treason suit themselves against someone else, but the attorney general prosecutes it? Yeah, I mean, I think if if an individual brought the case, it almost certainly would have been taken over uh, okay. by the attorney by the attorney general. Um, I, I didn't see in my research cases that would seem to be entirely brought by private prosecutors. Uh, there, there were cases where the attorney general did sort of delegate uh, authority to other lawyers who, who weren't state officials to, to prosecute the cases. What's also interesting is that you described the penalty as being in prison, and that's not a normal penalty in the 18th century, is it? Typically not. I mean, for most um, felonies, uh, at least you know in England, the, the, the crime, the punishment for felony is is execution um, or, or transportation, uh-huh. uh, you know, more typically to to one of one of the colonies. Um, I mean, there there was there's ways you could get out of it. I mean, there's there's benefit of clergy, which for a lot of felonies gives you sort of one free felony, uh, hmm. you know, and you get branded on your thumb and told not to do it again. And if you do, well, then then it's going to go badly for you. Uh, but yeah, so the, the the you know imprisonment also something you know a lot of historians have traced as a you know actually a development out of Philadelphia. Uh, really, as a, as a post-revolution uh, penal reform, uh, but you do see in this period uh, a lot of imprisonment, uh, simply because you, it was, it's really not clear what else to do with it, these people. Yeah. Right? You can't hang them. Uh, you also can't let them go because the whole point is that they're dangerous, uh, yeah. and you don't want them aiding the other side. And so um, you might view it as almost sort of a form of uh, you know, preventive detention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, the, my understanding. Certainly, Virginia, which I know a lot more about than in the South, and I know a lot more about than, than Pennsylvania or North, is that you're held in jail only as you await trial after you've been indicted, essentially, in the uh, or arraigned in the grand jury. I forget my my terms were wrong, um, and so that's the only time you're in jail. After that, you're uh, well. I mean, you could have a tongue. You kind of your tongue drilled, a, a, have a, a tongue drilled in your hole for blasphemy, for example, in colonial Virginia or Maryland. Um, there are various corporal punishments uh, like that that uh, exist for for people for minor for for felonies and well, not just for minor felonies, lesser. Felonies. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, whippings were, would would be the very yeah. typical thing. Whipping, yeah. yeah. Um, so, th- so this is a sort of uh, they're creating on the fly then an extrajudicial system. Is that uh, and. Is that more or less That's correct? That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. And this is going on, I mean, we're talking about Pennsylvania, but I know from New Jersey, uh, the governor, Livingston, sets up a sort of secret committee. I think they call it the secret committee. Um, and they do the same thing. 
Uh, in New York, there's a really sophisticated apparatus because it's led by John Jay, who, you know, that's the kind of guy he is. And that's the Committee for Detecting and um, Conspiracies, I think. The detection, uh, the Committee for the Detection of Conspiracies. Um, and that's not just a judicial committee, but it's also sort of a counterintelligence committee. So the, every colony is coming up with its own sort of extrajudicial means of dealing with this situation. Yeah. Um, so... Let's talk about what, how Britain dealt with traitors. Um, did they treat American prisoners um, uh, as as traitors? Yeah, this was one of those areas where sort of the law and the books confronts the reality of of, of the law in action, and it and it just comes sort of crashing to a halt. Uh, because you know, if, if you're from the British perspective, you've got these American rebels, and they've clearly committed a crime of treason by levying war against the king. And so, what you ought to do is would be to then try them for treason and presumably hang them. Uh, but there's a big problem with that, um, and that is, well, you've got the other side to this war. And George Washington made it very clear fairly early on that he would treat any. Uh, British prisoners in his custody uh, the same way that any American prisoners uh, were treated. And so what that meant was that if the British executed an American prisoner, uh, then he would in turn execute a British prisoner. Uh, well, that's you know completely unsatisfying uh, from the British perspective. And so what their solution was, was to simply suspend the writ of habeas corpus uh, and allow American prisoners to be t detained uh, more or less indefinitely, uh, without actually bringing any of them to trial as uh, traitors. And so no person, no American was ever executed by Britain uh, during the Revolutionary War. The only people executed were actually people who were executed by uh, American authorities uh, for adherence to Britain. They're not executed for treason. There, there are people like um, right. Colonel, Colonel Hayne in South Carolina who's executed for technically for violation of parole. Um, people yeah, like that. yeah, you see, yeah, do things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does all this, these inconsistencies, uh, how does, you make a very strong case into my mind, very persuasive that these inconsistencies, which are manifold uh, and for all these practical politicians, and they're extremely practical, uh, that they, uh, the inconsistencies in dealing with treason lead to a push for independence. How, how does that work out? Yes, yeah, so this is another thing I was sort of surprised by, which was you see a number of people arguing that one of the primary benefits of the Declaration of Independence is cleaning up uh, this legal problem with treason. Um, that is, it's, it's, it's absurd uh, to accuse the British adherents of treason while nominally remaining loyal to the British king. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that once independence was declared, we could then proceed properly uh, against the British adherents through actual you know, prosecutions in a court of law, and then followed up by hangings. Uh, and so some people like, you know, Thomas Paine, they got very excited <laughs> by this, by this, by this, this possibility. Uh, and so uh, obviously lots of things, you know, pushed uh, through the Declaration of Independence and Independence, but this did seem to be um, one of them of just resolving this, what had been really sort of unresolvable tension of, of the last uh, year. Yeah. And, and they're, they, they understand what hypocrisy is and they know the, the claims that they've been making, even in the, the declaration itself. And they realize what they've been doing to traitors is uh, people that they're accusing of treason. Uh, they want to have some way of making this uh, a proper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so following the declaration, um, the various colonies, now states, 
get to work um, writing new constitutions and forming new governments. Um, most of them, it's not that extreme. Um, Delaware actually almost becomes a loyalist sympathetic government for a while. <laughs> That's a separate story for another day. Um, Pennsylvania makes some of the most extreme and interesting uh, constitutional revisions. Uh, so what's what's their new government following uh, following the following declaration? Yeah, so Pennsylvania um, sort of dramatically expands uh, suffrage. It creates a unicameral uh, assembly, uh, and it abolishes uh, the office of governor. Uh, it's the only um, state that, that did that. Uh, and it created essentially a plural executive, um, a, a multi-member Supreme Executive Council. Um, one member of that was sort of the president of the council and could be viewed as um, you know, sort of perhaps analogous to a governor, but didn't have any of the governor's power because he could only act uh, in concert with the other members uh, of the executive council. And it was that council that then held the power of clemency uh, and the power to decide uh, whether or not, uh, you know, convicted persons should be uh, pardoned. Did they then fold the Committee of Safeties into the new government? Is that how they continued to detect treason? Yeah, so the, the basically there was a, there was the original committee of safety, which briefly then became a council of safety, and then that effectively merged into the the new Supreme Executive Council taking over uh, those functions. Uh, there were some brief moments where committees were were, were introduced uh, around the time reintroduced around the time of the uh, British invasion, but for the most part, it's now the Supreme Executive Council that will sort of take the lead uh, in um, investigating. Uh, cases of treason. Now, for at least um, half of 1777, uh, there's, uh, as you mentioned, the British invasion. There's a threat of British invasion basically as soon as spring comes around. Um, there's a fear that the British will pick up where they left off before Trenton and Princeton uh, in December or January of 1776, 1777, that uh, General Howe will now continue his march across the Jerseys and attack the capital of the, the new United States. Um, so they're dealing with a prospect of an invasion. Um, so how does this change the climate towards potential traitors over the course of 1777? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a big problem. I mean, people are truly terrified. Uh, you know, I mean, the thought of you losing your capital city, your biggest city to the enemy uh, is the you know, sort of thing that tends to concentrate the mind. Um, and it, it makes one, of course, you know, particularly alert to the fear of who, who is secretly aiding them. You know, who are the people who might be uh, on the other side in the, in, in the event that the army comes close? Well, one of the problems Pennsylvania had with the new government was they never got the, the courts up and running uh, very well. And so they didn't have functioning courts uh, in this period in 1777. So uh, you had, in some cases, the Continental Army uh, exercising uh, military jurisdiction over cases of disloyalty. You had the old um, uh, committees of safety uh, in, in the counties uh, exercising uh, jurisdiction. Uh, and then as, as the British Army started coming closer, uh, the Pennsylvania Assembly suspended uh, the writ of habeas corpus and essentially allowed people to be detained uh, indefinitely. Um, and that led to uh, probably the most famous incident uh, of this uh, in, in Pennsylvania during the revolution, which was a group of very prominent and wealthy uh, Quaker uh, men who were rounded up by the Pennsylvania government and then sent into exile uh, in Virginia. 
Be- before that we get to that, spend a number of months. Yeah, before we get to that fascinating um, incident, uh, could you explain how does the Continental Army get involved in all this? Does it? Can it just? Can a some a captain commanding a I don't know detachment in Wissahickon or wherever decide? Yeah, I don't like to look at that guy, and he doesn't seem right. And his two neighbors of his say that he's a, a sympathizer t- uh, to the British. I, I arrest him, and if he arrests him, what does he do with him? Yeah, so it tended to be it's uh, it wasn't just sort of sort of un uncontrolled discretion on the part of the army. So this usually rested on resolutions of the Continental Congress, uh, which authorized uh, military jurisdiction um, in cases of you know that are close to the military camp. Uh, and so there was one very famous incident where James Molesworth, who was a uh, former clerk to the mayor of Philadelphia, he was executed um, by military authorities for essentially being a spy. Um, for you know, passing, you know, uh, acting as a pilot uh, for British uh, ships coming up uh, the Delaware. Uh, so it wasn't sort of a, a free for all um, on the on the part of the army. And Washington tended to be pretty careful uh, in terms of the use of uh, military jurisdiction. But there definitely were cases uh, where that jurisdiction was exercised over Pennsylvania civilians uh, and not just uh, members of the military. And that the Quaker, the case of the Quaker exiles, which sounds like a Sherlock Holmes story, um, that's that kind of that doesn't that begin with John Sullivan, uh, major the major general in the uh, Continental Army, and his sort of suspicion of these people, because there's a conspiracy theory that he buys into, a lot of people buy into. Yeah, there was there was this fraudulent document, and it was called the, the you know, notes of the Spanktown Town Meeting. Yeah. I think was the name it was the name of it, uh, which was this you know very sort of anti Quaker. Uh, diatribe, and so this um, stirred um, a lot of people up uh, in, into thinking that the Quakers were, were this potential sort of fifth column for. Yeah. There is no uh, Spanktown meeting, and, by the way. Uh, yeah, no, it is right. It is. It is that was complete a complete fabrication. Complete fabrication. It might have been satire. Uh, who knows what it was supposed to be? But it, but people like Sullivan, who's from New Hampshire, they took. He seems to have taken it deadly as as like yeah, you know, this is the real stuff. This is you know, this is going on. This is happening. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, the problem for the, for, the, for the Quakers was for most of them, you know, their religious beliefs were we stay out of, out of war. Uh, you know, and so they just tried to remain neutral um, in this contest. Well, for the more ardent patriots, uh, if, you know, if you're not for us, you're against us. Uh, mm-hmm. And Quaker neutrality looked a lot like, uh, you know, to their mind, you know, sort of favoring uh, the British. And so, I mean, the Quakers themselves are torn apart by this. You have the Quakers who do side uh, with uh, with the rebels and, mm-hmm. and they kind of split off and become you know these these fighting uh, Quakers as, as they're known but they're all disowned by the regular uh, Quaker. You can see uh, their meeting. their meeting house is on Independence Hall. Um, yeah, right. Uh, right, Independence Mall, I should say, just uh, two blocks south of Independence Hall. Betsy Ross, founder, one of them. Um, so these and these exiles are then basically they go through they're exiled from the state. Is is yeah. that yeah. Yeah, so exile from the state. They are, um, you know, they live in Virginia f- uh, from I think it's about September 1777 through about April uh, of 1778, uh, when they're allowed to return. During that time, two of them uh, actually died. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now these were not people, uh, to be clear, who were sort of you know in chains in a dungeon. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were they were living in a nice house. They decided it was too crowded, so they expanded their lodging to include a couple other houses. One of them just got frustrated with the whole thing and got on his horse and rode back to Philadelphia. Um, you know, so you know, the, 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 it was a comfort to the extent an exile can ever be comfortable. Um, yeah. Theirs was 
pretty comfortable. And, and there are other people like Benjamin Chu, who if he's on any side, he's on Benjamin Chu's side. I think that's his side. Um, and they get exiled too uh, for having some connection to the previous government. But he's basically exiled from the state and goes lives on or has to live on one of his properties in northern New Jersey, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and true is interesting because he's you know, the former chief justice uh, of the colony, yeah. uh, and of course it's his house that becomes the center of uh, mm-hmm. the Battle of Germantown, and, and a family that's um, intimately involved uh, with the Penn family, and uh, always ends up you know well anyway they, I've been look, looking at they 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 left they're the greatest pack rats in the history of America maybe I mean they, <laughs> yeah. that, every generation of the family saved everything it's wonderful they're historians yes. dream oh, and we the, love those people oh they're so good and the historical society of Pennsylvania has it all so there's lots to be discovered in the Chu family I mean even board games in the late 19th century uh, everything I mean everything they saved so um so there's the Chu's at the Quakers um Eventually, the British leave. Um, they leave, take a lot of loyalists with them. Um, so who was uh, – so I'm imagining the people that didn't leave, people like Joseph Galloway, uh, people who were able to leave, uh, they were the wealthiest. Um, but some stayed behind. Um, who stayed behind? Who was unfortunate enough to stay behind to be prosecuted for treason? What kind of people were these? Uh, these tended to be sort of smaller – level people you know as you note like the 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 really wealthy the really powerful the ones who had you know execute had held very high office under the under the british in philadelphia they they all leave um but there's a lot more who want to leave uh, and um you know how says you 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 can't leave we, we don't have room for you basically go back and make the best deal you can with the rebels uh and so a lot of folks who you know had reason to be worried uh are are pretty much stuck uh, and so you can imagine when you know the Americans come back and take uh, retake Philadelphia, uh, there's an enormous amount of resentment uh, by those who'd been you know, you know who'd out of the city, been you know out in Valley Forge and other places, uh, resentful of those people who'd re- remained behind, and convinced that you know a lot of treason had happened in the city during the occupation. So there's a there's a patriotic society is formed, which is uh, the goal is to uh, bring these traitors uh, to justice, and then ultimately. Um, about 23 people are uh, brought to actual trial um, in Philadelphia in 1778 uh, to 1779. Uh, but for the most part, they are very small fry. Um, one of them, um, William Hamilton, uh, was very, uh, very hmm. wealthy. Uh, but most of the rest uh, were actually quite obscure, and some of them so obscure that you can almost find no other trace of them uh, in, in historical records. Hmm. So, was it these this this patriotic society was were was it people within that society who were bringing the the suits against people to bring them to serve a grand jury? So they were helping um, gather and uh, collect evidence. Ultimately, it was the state's attorney general, um, Jonathan Dickinson Sargent, and then later his, his assistant Joseph Reed, uh, who brought the cases uh, to uh, the grand jury. So, how did? Um... How are grand juries formed for these? I mean, this is where you your years and years of uh, eyeball popping labor uh, are, are are involved, because uh, you we're going to get to this is that you know about these juries and you know who's on these juries. So who are on the grand juries and how are they formed and how do they assess the evidence? Yeah, so this was what I probably got you know sort of interested in was you know given the ultimate results 
of of the trials and of the things that went to the grand jury. You know, so who who are who are they? Because it's, it's very easy to just say the grand jury did this, the grand jury did that. Right. Well, the grand jury is is real people. It's people um, yeah. who, who who make decisions, and so you kind of look, well. Who, so who are those folks? Uh, so the grand jury um, was uh, selected by the Philadelphia uh, sheriff. Uh, and uh, he picked people who were largely uh, wealthy and prominent people. I think five or six of the grand jurors uh, were actually justices of the peace in, in Philadelphia County. Uh, and when you go through the tax records, you see that these uh, were among the, the richest people in Philadelphia, far, far wealthier than the who, people who served as trial jurors. Who is the uh, Philadelphia sheriff? Is that Nixon? Um, the guy, the um, no, the declaration? It is, uh, no, it's not him. It is... Um, and I apologize, okay. I am uh, but, blanking, he's basically, blanking on, on the – oh, sorry, James Claypool. James Claypool. Who was elected in 1777. And he basically is 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 not naming and uh, his friends are serving because the, the, the sheriff usually – I mean, you look at Nixon's house and I think – didn't Claypool become a mayor later? Anyway, th- these, are not, these are not minor functionaries. These are minor citizens who somehow are grateful to be elected to sheriff so they can have a – a shilling or two to rub together. These are these are prominent citizens before they become sheriff. Yeah. So Claypool was uh, he was a painter. Yeah. Um, in uh, in Philadelphia. And and so he's getting the elite elite artisans, and then also the just the gentlemen, the landowners. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and this was and this sort of follows a pattern that one saw in in England as well, where okay. the grand jury tended to be just a much higher social tier uh, than trial jurors. Okay. And so how, how does a grand jury work? Can you tell from this evidence how the grand jury assessed the evidence that was presented to it? So the grand jury typically would have 23 members and you would need a majority uh, to issue an indictment. Uh, and unfortunately, we have absolutely no evidence <laughs> of the inner workings of the grand jury, including we don't even know physically where it meant, where it met. Uh, you know, one can extrapolate from some other records, uh, but what we ultimately have is, is just what they did. And what they did is, you know, they choose to indict or not to indict. And what I found interesting is how many people they chose not to indict, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, you would say, well, gee, why, why would they not do that? Well, some of it was probably just bad evidence not presented. Some of it was, you know, not, not very credible. Uh, but I do think that they actually took a pretty hard look at this and rejected a number of cases that may well have been plausible hmm. uh, and curiously the chair the, the chairman uh, of the of the grand jury uh, had a son who was a loyalist um, who was serving in the same unit as one of the men who was charged uh, with treason uh, and so I think the, the grand jurors I think this is also true as the trial jurors you know, they all knew someone uh, on the other side and so they indicted for treason at a far lower rate than they did for other crimes like murder or burglary and you know, theft and th- those sorts of things, which, which they also heard at the same time. So in the end, there's only something like, what, 40, uh, 23 people um, are actually tried? Or no, actually, it's a lot more than that. I'm looking at the uh, – you have an appendix to jury trials for high treason in Pennsylvania? Yes. Well, there's, 23 in, there's 23 in Philadelphia right after the um, – British occupation ends. Uh, and then over the course of the war, there's probably about 40 some trials. Okay. And I, I see you've got it by, by County as well. Um, I'm really, you know, you're, I'm stunned to see that Bedford County, which is like half the state of Pennsylvania at the time, I think it's like everything West of the, well, a lot of the stuff that's West of the Appalachians. Um, there's only three trials and they're all not guilty, which 
you know, uh, Northampton, which I always thought of as, uh, only has one trial in 1780. And I always thought of Northampton, um, there's been books written about it as being full of, you know, zealous anti-loyalist settlement. Maybe they just couldn't find anyone else to, uh, to prosecute. I don't know. Um, but there, that, that's kind of going against, going against some of my preconceptions about how things would have worked, that these very Whig counties don't have lots of, they aren't like looking under every bed and sometimes creating uh, loyalist traders where none exist. Yeah, you certainly don't get the sense that there was some type of massive, you know, witch hunt going on here. Uh, you know, more likely there was far more people actually committed treason under Pennsylvania law than ever, you know, came in front of a court. Mm-hmm. Um, you say that the trial of Joseph is it Malin? Malin? Um, I, I'm I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've only seen it written down. <laughs> yeah, it's, that, it's, it's off the history of it. You read the names, to hear it pronounced. Yeah. No, none of his neighbors could tell you how to pronounce his name. Oddly enough, yeah. um, so but it's like a template for future trials. So tell us about that trial. Um, tell us about who he was, as best as you discovered, and then we should, uh, and then we can get into like how you discovered things about him and about the people that were jurors for him. Yeah, so so Joseph, uh, I'll call him Malin. Um, yeah, go ahead. Was a uh, was a wheelwright in uh, Chester County, and he was charged uh, with treason. And uh, he was uh, represented by James Wilson and George Ross, and those are pretty big names. Uh, explain in, in explain who they are. Law. Yeah, so James Wilson is a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He's perhaps the most, one of the most prominent attorneys in uh, Philadelphia. He's one of the leaders of uh, the resistance movement. He has a very famous pamphlet uh, that was uh, arguing against uh, parliamentary control of the colonies. Uh, he later becomes a key member of the Constitutional Convention, perhaps second only Madison in terms of his influence, and then becomes a justice of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and George Ross is also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, so these are big time lawyers who are clearly you know, on the American side, uh, and yet here they are defending uh, a person accused of treason uh, against uh, the state of Pennsylvania. So uh, I find that one of the more extraordinary and fascinating stories of the revolution, and it's one that's not really known. We, John Adams gets all this attention for hmm. uh, what he did in the Boston Massacre trial, uh, but this was really in many ways even more heroic as sort of an act of lawyerly service. And indeed, Wilson nearly lost his life at the hands of an armed mob. We'll get to um, that. And yeah, and, yeah. and it certainly has been uh, traduced, shall we say, uh, for hundreds of hundreds of years since, uh, in many ways, for, for having done it. Um, you know, I just, uh, having watched Hamilton, uh, I've been watching, I watched 1776, the musical, just the, the early Hamilton. And of course, the James Wilson that you see in, in 1776 is, has nothing to do with the actual historical James Wilson. He's just no. They they really do a smear job on him, which is really, unfortunate. But I and, and the and I think there's the idea that you we get from sort of uh, his political enemies in, in in Pennsylvania that you know he's just basically once he's just he's too weak to be even be a loyalist, um, and that's sort of in some ways that's come down about him. Also, that he's also a bankrupt. We know that about him too. Um, but 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 he is also one of the great legal theorists of maybe early American history, maybe all of all American history. Um, and he's also a hell of a trial lawyer. So let's put a pin on that. And we'll come back to him. Um, who is the Mounds or Wheelwright from Chester County? Who, who's on the jury? 
Um, so actually, we don't know that because the Chester County records don't survive. So this trial has only been able to sort of piece together uh, from newspaper accounts. Um, but we do know that the jury acquitted him. And part of it was that uh, the charge was sort of was a very bizarre issue. Um, hmm. He had fled to a group of uh, soldiers that he thought were British soldiers. Uh, uh, but they weren't. They were actually American soldiers. Uh, so he had botched his crime. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, Wilson and Ross argued, well, he didn't actually commit a crime because fleeing to American soldiers in itself is not criminal. Uh, and so even if he had, um, you know, this bad intent, that is, he sort of attempted to commit treason but failed, um, what he did um, was not uh, treason. And, and, you know, they won an acquittal uh, on that point. And this was the first jury trial for treason uh, since the Declaration of Independence had been signed. Uh, and I think it suggested, you know, first of all, the defense count, the defendants here were going to have, they're going to have good lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they're going to get off in, in some cases. Uh, and juries are going to be sympathetic. Um, and that, I think, you know, very much sort of foreshadowed what ultimately happened uh, in Philadelphia. So how – I had never realized that defendants' counsel could select juries even in 1777 or 1778. So how does a defendants' counsel in 1778 select a jury and then what, display this this massive eyeball-popping scholarship? Uh, how did you discover who these jur- <laughs> jurors were? Yeah. So um, – when I, I started researching the subject, actually, when I was in, in college, um, hmm. and I remember reading through these these court records, and for some reason, I just happened to take a look at the, at the names of, of the jurors. And, and then I looked at each of the trials, and I noticed I, you saw some of the same names over and over and hmm. over again. And then you realize, okay, these are not 20th century juries, uh, you know, where each jury is compl- distinctly composed and entirely random uh you know you have multiple service by the same jurors so how was this how did this happen uh well it basically deals with the mechanics of jury selection and the way it worked was the sheriff would uh, pull a panel of maybe uh 80 or so people and then they would be the juror pool for a whole series of trials Mm -hmm. and so they were used uh, as the the jurors for essentially all of these treason trials and the Defendants were allowed 35 peremptory strikes. That is that they could simply say, I, I don't want this juror. They don't have to offer any reason for it. And the government at that time was given zero. Uh, now in modern American trials, the government and the defendants have the same number of peremptory strikes, but that wasn't the case uh, then. They, and so the records I mean, that we I mean, have... Did you say 35 peremptory strikes? Right. Is that a lot then or is it a lot? That's, yes. That's a lot. Is yeah. it a lot now? It's a lot. It's, yeah. yeah, it would be a lot. It would be a lot now. I, I, don't, I don't think any jurisdiction now grants thirty-five. Okay, um, that was that was my feeling when I was reading that. I couldn't. I could not believe that there were thirty-five. Um, okay, go on, please. Yeah, and so you 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 see then there's these you know evidence of that the defend the defense lawyers repeatedly use these strikes, and so I was curious, you know, how did they do them? Like, you know, to what it, what were they? thinking when they were trying to shape their jury, because that's certainly a big part of being a modern trial lawyer is, is, is picking your jury. Uh, some people say, you know, that the trial is over when the jury is picked. That's you know not necessarily true, but it certainly helps mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, of what your jury looks like. So uh, what I then re- recreated was um, the list of all the people who served uh, on these juries, the number of times they served, uh, and then tried to figure out who, who they were. 
Um, and this was a challenge because uh, these <laughs> so, uh, are, 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 are not, these are not prominent people, right? This isn't James Wilson. Right? This is not Benjamin Franklin. These are people who left, in many cases, very little uh, historical imprint. And so you have to resort to all kinds of other sources. You know, tax records is really sort of the starting place, um, militia records, church records, uh, things like that. Um, sometimes, you know, the tools of a, of a genealogist. Uh, to try to figure out who they were. And part of the problem is, you know, these people have the same name. And so all the, all the, yeah. the court records show you is, is the name. And so there are a number of jurors who, unfortunately, are just never able uh, to conclusively identify, which was which is is regrettable. Yeah, John Smith is an overly popular name in colonial America. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, um, the um, and uh, where did you begin? Historical Society of Pennsylvania. I mean, uh, and did you? Where did you do most of your research? Yeah. So actually, this is one of those projects I never could have done it without um, digitization Mm -hmm. uh, and computers. I mean, 30 years ago, I could not have written this book. Uh, So I actually started out running the names through all of the uh, databases, you know, the newspaper databases, uh, those things. And that's really something quite extraordinary. If you think about the knowledge, so let's say you just pick a random name, um, like... uh, you know, Stoltzfus. Uh, yeah, Stoltzfus, right. Okay, come on. How many times was Stoltzfus referenced in the Pennsylvania Gazette between 1750 and 1800? More than you'd so think, but that, still not that many. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. But I, enter, I can yeah. enter that into a computer, and I now know that the answer is seven, and most of them were in the 1770s. Yeah. That is knowledge that did not exist. That's yeah, beautiful. In this yeah. world until I entered that search. Right? And nobody in the 18th century knew that either. Yeah. Right, because they would have That's had to right. have gone through every every paper. So you can you can with these computers, you know, generate truly new knowledge, which is you know really quite I, something. Yeah, I like to I like to talk when I talk to guests. It's always amazing how many topics uh, were are lying around in plain sight, um, more more than you think, and thankfully. But this is not something lying around in plain sight. This is something that you really need a database for, um, and then all of a sudden. You know, thanks to that, you've discovered the obscure becomes visible. Yeah, and and one of the key ways is is figuring out people's age. Uh, oh. You know, someone has noted that the hardest thing you can f- to figure out about people in this era is is how old they were. Um, well, you, where would you get that? You get that in a birth record. Okay, so I got someone living in Philadelphia. Well, I have no idea where they were born. If they were born in Philadelphia, maybe I can find them in a church record. But if they weren't born in Philadelphia, I mean, they're born in Boston or in England or somewhere else, you know, forget it. Uh, so where you do get it ultimately is the obituary when they die. <laughs> and it tells you how old they were when they died. Um, well, but there's I, there's no way I could just, again, without digitization, hunt obituaries, mm-hmm. you know, 30, 40 years out. And maybe they move somewhere else. And so they die in, a, in another state. Um, but again, with something like early American newspapers database, you can pull some of those things up. Um, so and, you like we, figure it out. Even the search terms must have taken some some tinkering with. So you must yeah. have like if you're looking for Stoltzfus, uh, who you can't find it, but they, maybe they emigrated to Indiana and died in like the 1830s or something like that. And then mm-hmm. you have to look exactly to, right. So you're looking for Stoltzfus, and, Pencil, Pennsylvania, and Midwestern newspapers. Yeah, and you've and you've got to you know try variant spellings. Um, you know, yeah. Part of the problem is right. You've got you know you've got the s's that, that are always a problem yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of how how well the thing has been scanned. And sometimes people just spelled their name differently. I mean, there's yeah, people, a lot of people, irregularity of yeah. People sign their so name just, differently. It's really weird, but they yeah. didn't they didn't care about it as much as we do. It's really it's one of the, one of the things I've always wanted to talk with someone about what what's going on here that someone goes from you know Bolton to. Bootin or something. I don't know, but it's, it can be kind of extreme by our standards. 
Yeah, and you, you actually be very careful with these digital searches because you, you don't want to, you know, be overly confident that you found everything. Um, you know, given these potential uh, spelling variations. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you've indicated these are not the kind of people on the juries that were on the grand juries, right? Is that with that right? They're a different social class, a lower social class. Yeah. So these these are they're basically I would say sort of sort of solidly middle class people, probably sort of in the roughly you know kind of fifty to seventieth percentile of uh, Philadelphia taxpayers. So mm-hmm. um, they're certainly not poor, um, but you know, but they but they're neither are they uh, particularly rich. They're voters. Are they artisans? Yeah, so there's there's a mix. Um, most of them uh, are uh, artisans. Uh, you see a few people, um, you know, like, like uh, merchants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, you know, and this kind of goes to what the what the defense lawyers were looking for uh, as they're trying to weed these jurors down, and what they were looking for, as far as I can tell, there's sort of a number of things. So first of all, religion. Uh, that is, um, the Presbyterian jurors seem to be the most disfavored, not surprisingly, because Presbyterians <laughs> tended to be the strongest supporters of the revolution. Um, similarly, German Reformed, Dutch Reformed, not so much, but uh, Anglicans and Quakers. Uh, and oh. the Quakers here are distinctive because in order to serve, they had to take the oath of allegiance to the state. So there's sort of a distinctive type of Quaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, Anglicans and Quakers were viewed as more favorable, I think, to the defense. L- Lutherans don't show up much, or, or what's the they like they they you go either way with a Lutheran. I mean, how's that? Yeah, work? I think they were I think they were kind of in the in the middle. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and then and then you have age. They tended to favor older jurors over younger jurors. I think perhaps you know you know, wisdom over, you know, hotheads. Um, mm-hmm. And also just the older jurors, you know, probably had, you know, a longer time of living under the king. And so perhaps more sympathetic. Uh, German, um, wealthy, English? Wealthier, wealthier, ju- wealthier jurors over uh, younger uh-huh. jurors. Uh, and then in terms of ethnicity, yeah. uh, there seems to be some you know, favorance for, uh, of people with uh, English descent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was actually very another tricky thing to try to figure out was was people's uh, descent because you it's, you can just look at the last name but that that can be yeah. completely misleading because there's often anglicized names and so you can't sure. tell so uh, I had to really you know dig into some records and he, something that was hugely useful here actually surprisingly was ancestry.com uh-huh. uh, which is a a resource that um, I think sometimes historians overlook but it has an amazing number of digitized records uh, particularly things like church records uh, and um, you know immigration records. Uh, where you can find these things. And weirdly, they actually had um, a number of digitized uh, 18th century Philadelphia court records uh, available on uh, Amazon, which you know, I could you know, then look at you know, from my office here in Davis. So it's really quite a uh, impressive resource. And then you can uh, trace some of the, the people's ancestry back to, to where, they, where their ancestors immigrated from. I'll say there's a lot of garbage on that site in terms of you know people create these personal family trees, mm-hmm. um, almost all of which you know unless it's backed up by, you know documentary evidence you just can't rely on. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some cases they they do provide the documents and and you can um, find out quite a lot. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking of the great you know social histories of the 1970s and the stuff they had to the microfilm they had to wade through. And here you are in your office in Davis <laughs> with Ancestry.com. It, it really yeah. is something. This is this is no. Is I guess I mean. I There's do really- appreciate the older historians more and more and more. And, yeah. You know, you now read a book, say somebody, you know, wrote a big book in the 1940s and you realize, they, you know, they didn't even have microfilm. They didn't even have photocopiers. You yeah. know, they, 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 they're typing it out on a typewriter and, uh, you know, what yeah. they would have given to have the, the resources we have now. Not to mention Excel. I mean, we're, we, we should be on like a, a – I think we're on the cusp, this is, of a new age of social history. 
in which all these things are going to be put to use in the next 20 years. I mean, this is starting already, but we haven't even tapped the uh, potential. Yeah, I think it's it's really exciting what what could be coming down the pike. Yeah. So um, we talked. You talked a little bit about how James Wilson almost lost his life. Could you describe the Battle of Fort Wilson, one of my favorite incidents in the American Revolution? It's not, yeah, this not, is not what people think. <laughs> no, it's not. This is the you know the the, the story that I opened the book with uh, in great, the introduction. Great, it's, it's... a great way of opening the book, and I, I love the way you do it. So could you, I don't want to steal all of that, but. Uh, <laughs> But uh, what what happened to James Wilson, or what did? Yeah, so, so basically, you know, so so James Wilson, he is in his house with a bunch of wealthy men, and there are soldiers marching down the street, uh, and pretty soon the battle erupts at his house, and they are shooting at at him, at his house, and he is and his friends are shooting back, uh, and eventually this gets quelled uh, by a Philadelphia cavalry unit. And you might think that, well, this was the British coming to get him because he was assigned the Declaration of Independence, but it's not. These were, this was an American uh, soldiers, American militiamen, who were attacking Wilson's house. Uh, and there were a lot of complicated reasons that, that went into this incident. Part of the problem was in 1779, there was a massive economic collapse triggered by serious inflation, and people like Wilson and his, some of his friends were viewed as complicit in that. Uh, but equally uh, motivating this was Wilson's defense of persons accused of treason. And so two days before this event, Wilson had won an acquittal for uh, a person accused of treason. And he had won that in the courthouse in Independence Hall, just across the hall from where he had signed the Declaration of Independence. Uh, And one of the complaints uh, that later surfaced was that, you know, the extreme lenity shown to persons who had been disloyal to the United States. And Wilson was blamed for that, uh, for serving as their counsel. And and this was a real battle. I think seven or eight people died Mm -hmm. um, in this incident. Um, It's really sort of, you know, the worst incidents of sort of urban combat uh, in the American Revolution. And it's, it's not as, you know, it's not a proud, it's not a story that makes one's proud. You know, you, you, you don't, it has, it's not featured, you know, in, uh, it's not going to show up in 1776 or Hamilton, you know, yeah. when, we, when we think about uh, the revolution. But I think it actually tells us a lot about just how divisive uh, this thing was and how critical this issue of treason uh, yeah. was. Uh, it's a it's a it's a pop it can it can make a a mob go nuts um eventually is what this issue can do it can it can get people are literally up in arms about it yes literally up in arms in this case absolutely right yeah so what happens i mean this is not the last was that that was october was that the um when uh when that but it was in 1779 october October 4 1779 because i was joseph Joseph, i'm looking at i'm I'm cheating i've got the chart your chart in front of me i know that joseph wort here who was attorney for joseph wort who was acquitted october 2nd and um the the trials go on in november december uh, then they are again in 1780, and they're as late as there's uh, the last trial is actually uh, Joshua Buffington tried September 30th, 1782, Philadelphia in the state house, uh, in the the jury room across the hallway from where the the Continental Congress has been meeting up until just before that. Um, so, what's the upshot of all this? I mean, is this a continual bad feeling? Does this lead to like the the the, the bad feeling that exists between? Um, Federalists like Wilson and or nationalists like Wilson and anti-nationalists during the ratification of the Constitution? 
Well, I guess sort of I'd say sort of there's there's two upshots. The one is that if you look at the the, the pattern of these jury trials, is that uh, in almost every case the juries acquit, uh, and in the few cases in which they convict, uh, they ask the Supreme Executive Council for clemency, uh, and those petitions are supported not only by the trial jurors but the grand jurors and the presiding judges uh, as well. So there was an absolute sort of disinclination uh, to punish people for treason by execution. Uh, that is, treason was viewed as the, the highest crime known to the law, um, but the jurors actually just didn't believe that. Uh, they were unwilling to punish accused traitors in the same way that they were would punish murderers or burglars. And, and I think the reason for that is um, they didn't. The defendants didn't look like just sort of incorrigible criminals, but they looked like friends and neighbors uh, who had. Uh, made a wrong political choice and that this was ultimately a political crime. Uh, and so one of the things I try to trace is, is, you know, how many of these, what type of connections did these jurors have to the defendants? And I think with almost all of them, you can say there's probably someone that they knew, maybe it's a, a friend, a family member, a, you know, a business associate or someone who was on the other side. Uh, and so in those circumstances, uh, capital punishment for treason simply seemed excessive and the jurors were not willing to do it. And I think in many cases they acquitted rather than uh, have any risk that the defendant might be executed. And that sort of ties into the second thing, which is these were redeemable people. Hmm. They could eventually become part of American society again. And that's what you you see after the war uh, is how many people, including exiles, including some of the most significant exiles, uh, all come back. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. and are welcomed into uh, society. It didn't sort of permanently split it. Now, granted, there were loyalists, obviously, a, a large number who, who, who stayed away and after all. Uh, after never all, came back, and that was, yeah. and that was a big deal for them. But, um, and thus, it was, and it thus was Canada really was created. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah, it, is, it is stunning, and I don't think enough that there needs to be more. I, I, I'm really intrigued by that. Um, I've always been intrigued by that, by the people that came back. They might have lived in a different place. I found some people from South Jersey who end up dying in Brooklyn um, or someplace else, but they came back and um, they even had, uh, they had successfully gotten money from the loyalist claims um, uh, in the 1790s and they, but they, and they end up coming back to the United States. It's not what you'd expect. And it still, you know, uh, and you do such a nice job of explaining it. Um, Sort of there's a, the philosophy of the jury. I know uh, modern lawyers think about this a lot. Uh, have your has your attitude towards juries changed <laughs> by doing <laughs> this research? Because I mean, juries come off really, really well <laughs> in this. You, as you say, all the evidence indicates that jurors took their responsibility seriously and were perfectly willing to make unpopular decisions. As the democratic branch of the judicial department, juries reflected community values, but they did not mindlessly yield to the passions of the moment. Yeah, I mean, so I, I do think the, these juries um, did a good job. Um, now, um, of course, in many ways, they, they weren't representative of the, of the full community, right? They, they're limited to men. Mm -hmm. um, they're all white men. So as, as, a, as a full reflection of, of the Philadelphia community, they would, they would have only been a, a sort of a minimal uh, reflection. Uh, but it's also true that all the, the defendants in these cases were also all white men. Um, white, white, white men as well. There was one woman who was indicted, but she never went to trial. Um, and so I think in, in this circumstance, juries worked well. Um, but it's also true that what they did is they oftentimes acquitted in the face of clear evidence of wrongdoing. 
And one might say that in these circumstances, that was appropriate. Uh, but if you think about the course of jury trial throughout American history, there's also instances where juries did things like that. Uh, and I'm thinking about, um, you know, uh, all white juries in the South who simply refused uh, to convict uh, people who were guilty mm -hmm. of or who had committed uh, you know, the crime of, 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 of killing and harming black Americans. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a, you really got to take into the whole scope of, of American jury history in, in terms of thinking about, you know, how juries should function now because it really is, it is quite a different uh, institution than we had back then and one of the things that i think helped those jurors was that they served trial after trial after trial hmm. uh, so they had a lot of experience right they they knew what they were doing they'd seen these cases before they knew what the prosecution tricks were and, and so forth uh, whereas that's really not the case anymore right now you know the jury's going into a sort of a one-shot uh deal and uh, so it's it's sort of hard to extrapolate. I mean, I've I've been trying to get on you know on a jury here in in, in Willow <laughs> County, California. I, I got never called. One, one time, one time I made it into the into the bench, and the judge you know had this colloquy with me. You know, because like you know, can you go into the jury room and just be an ordinary person and you know not be a a law professor uh, and an expert on juries? And I was like, yeah, of course I could do that. Um, but not surprisingly, the uh, the defense accounts defense counsel struck me. I was, I was temporarily struck uh, uh -huh. by, by yeah. a defendant's counsel uh, in, yeah. in that case. So, um, so th there's a, there's an interesting um, sort of segue that comes out of this is that this is um, these people are being tried for not treason against the United States. They're being tried for treason against Pennsylvania, correct? Yeah. So technically the crime is uh, treason against uh, the state of Pennsylvania. Um, although they, um, when they use that term, they almost always refer to treason against Pennsylvania and against uh, the United States hmm. of America. And so one of the things I was really surprised at was the, uh, was the rhetoric that one sees. And it really is sort of nationalistic. Uh, That's very interesting. Rhetoric. Uh, so if you look at, um, uh, this is August 1776, the Council of Safety, um, they accuse a person of treasonable practices against the states uh, of America. Hmm. Um, John Biles is charged with treason against the United States of America, hmm. right? And that is 1776. And so they're really thinking of loyalty and allegiance as a national allegiance. Uh, now, it's not tried at the national level because there is no national court system. But I think all of the rhetoric, you, you don't really hear much about loyalty to Pennsylvania. All of the rhetoric is national. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it, that's where your loyalty really does lie. Okay. So the, um, the, you do chronicle some of the other sort of uses of, of treason law in Pennsylvania. Uh, for example, the, there's a tax revolt in Berks County in the mid 1780s, um, which is surprising. Um, there are much better known revolt tax revolts later on in, um, in well, Massachusetts, of course, famously, but also there's the, the freeze rebellion in Pennsylvania in the 17, right. what, 98, 99. Um, yeah. So what do you make from this sort of later, these later treason trials, briefly? So you have um, the, the later uh, treason trials are the, really the first federal treason trials, and they occur in Pennsylvania. Another reason why I, I thought Pennsylvania was a, was a good state to focus on, because you can then bring the story into those first uh, federal trials uh, arising out of the Whiskey Rebellion mm -hmm. and Freeze's Rebellion. And both of those are uh, tax revolts. Um, the prosecutor in the, um, 
uh, Whiskey Rebellion case was a former <laughs> loyalist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Which is um, really quite uh, extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jaw dropping, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Right? And, they're, and they're prosecuting people for you know tax resistance, which was in some ways, of course, what the American Revolution uh, was all about. Uh, so, but these trials too somewhat follow the earlier pattern. Uh, in which, you know, for the most part, grand juries didn't indict, uh, the trial juries didn't uh, convict, and then the few cases where there were convictions, uh, you know, the Washington administration and, then, and the Adams administration granted pardons. Um, so no person uh, was hanged uh, as a result of those trials. Uh, and I took a look at jury selection there, too, and it also looked like jury selection played a, um, a big role in terms of, you know, the, the attorneys uh, sort of being strategic about how uh, they were to use these, uh, you know, and there's this term Philadelphia lawyer, which you know, kind of comes <laughs> into vogue a little bit later, but it generally meant like, you know, people at the very top echelon of the bar. And, uh, that's, that's very much who was involved, uh, in these cases. And that may be one difference between, you know, capital cases today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the very highest echelon of the bar is not routinely defending capital cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, uh, in, in, in the late 18th century, at least in, in Philadelphia. Um, we have to start. We have to wrap this up. We've gone over time, but I, there's um, a lot of interesting uh, follow through to other areas of history. Um, you know, I, I think in your new book, you point out that I think John Brown's the only person that's been convicted of a state of treason against the state since the American Revolution. Is that is that right? Well, he he's the only one. He and Edwin Coppock uh, were the only ones executed for treason, uh, for against, treason against, the against the state. Okay. Yeah. Others have been convicted, other convi- convicted. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and at the same that's so that's 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 interesting. Um, they also point out that um, you know in the American Civil War, there's very much the attitude that these juries seem to have ha- have had and passed down that these people are reformable. And we didn't try Jefferson Davis. There are political reasons for that, but there is also that that we can I think trace that idea that these people can be redeemed as citizens. We can trace that back even to the American Revolution. Yes, I think that's right. Um, how do you think, uh, just to wrap this up, how do you think, um, do the law of treason influence the law of citizenship in that order rather than the other way around? Which chicken came, Which did the chicken or the egg come first? Uh, I think there's an argument that, that, that treason actually came first. Yeah. Um, because if you think about these 1775 trials in front of committees of safety, and they're using this language about um, you know, America. And, and there's all these claims about people that are being enemies to America or traitors to America, you know, that's nationalistic language. Uh, and treason is always, you know, it's, it's a breach of allegiance, right? If you don't have allegiance to this country, you, you, you can't commit treason against it. Uh, and so once you start using that language, um, you really are invoking um, some idea of national allegiance, uh, which really is not that distinct from uh, national citizenship. Well, my guest today has been Carlton Larson. He's the author of The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution, and Just in Time for Christmas, On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, in case you're thinking of committing treason and need a guide to help <laughs> you do it or get off or something like that. Carlton Larson, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. 
Thank you. I enjoyed it. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.